Good afternoon. Welcome to the fifth segment of our restorative justice program. Today we'll feature the prosecutor's perspective of restorative justice, both federal and state. But first, some thanks and some housekeeping. I want to first thank the BBA for putting on this program in a new format. We call it a deconstructed conference. I also want to thank my co-chairs, Andrea Kramer and Anuj Katarpal. The first four programs featuring different perspectives of restorative justice are available to view on the BBA's website, bostonbar.org. Today's program, like all the other programs, as Jenna told you, will be divided into two parts. The first part is a webinar with our two speakers and will last about 20, 25 minutes. The second part is a live Q&A. This is gonna be your chance to ask all the questions you've ever wanted to ask about a prosecutor's perspective of restorative justice. So all you have to do is click on the link in the chat and that'll bring you straight to the live session. So please stick around, don't navigate away, and I promise it will be worth it. So with no further ado, I just want to tell you a little bit about our two speakers. Marion Ryan, who is having some technical difficulties right now, so is going to be a little bit late joining us. Nonetheless, Marion Ryan became District Attorney of Middlesex County, the state's largest county in 2013. For five years, she was the only female DA in Massachusetts. She's a career prosecutor with voluminous trial experience and appellate experience. She's argued more than 40 cases before the Massachusetts Appeals Court and the Supreme Judicial Court. Jamie Herbert is an assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts. Uh, he's been with the U.S. Attorney's Office for over 30 years. Um, he was a former supervisor in the Organized Crime and Gang Unit and the Deputy Chief of the Criminal Division. So first, uh, when, why don't we get started? And I'm going to ask Jamie while we wait for Marion to join us. Jamie, could you describe what role restorative justice plays in your office? Uh, absolutely. And in fact, I think we have Marion with us. I, I at least see her. So Excellent. I see her too. Um, yeah, sure. Um, our uh, restorative justice program was started by Judge Sorokin and uh, originally it was conceived as part of uh, the RISE program, which is the front end program that he created. And the restorative justice component was developed by probation officer Maria Dadieko, who is a, a very experienced and gifted uh, restorative justice practitioner. And so primarily uh, restorative justice uh, was part of the RISE program, which as some of you probably know, is a front end program uh, in which eligible defendants who are willing to plead guilty go through a one year period of more intensive pretrial supervision. It includes uh, working towards certain predetermined goals and uh, meeting monthly with a supervising judge to track their progress. And so uh, and, and in return for that, their, their participation in the program is factored into their sentencing, but there are no guarantees that it will result in a substantial sentence reduction, although there is that hope. And more often than not, those who have successfully completed the program uh, have not been sentenced to additional prison time. So the restorative justice uh, program, uh, which has now been made available to uh, some defendants outside of RISE, has basically four parts. It's got an intro session in which we explain what restorative justice is to the participants. Uh, it's got a multi-day workshop that's conducted in the form of a restorative justice circle. And then we do some more uh, focused individual work in a restorative conference uh, with somebody 
that the participant is harmed or a surrogate victim. And so the first two parts of that are mandatory and the second two are optional. And then we've got an additional uh, feature that we've added recently, which is sort of a five session circle process that focuses on uh, trauma in the lives of the participants and trying to connect that to what they've done. So it's kind of our program and, um, and uh, it's been growing and, uh, and so far it's been very successful. In addition to that, our office is also supporting uh, restorative justice programming in mass uh, DOC facilities uh, where AUSAs have served as uh, facilitators for restorative justice groups and uh, have participated in, in uh, MCI Norfolk's restorative justice responsibility retreat, which they were doing once a year before COVID. Um, so that's sort of how it factors in briefly in the, in the, on the federal side. Marion, welcome. Um, could you, I think you're on mute. Great. Could you um, also discuss the, the role of restorative justice and um, how it plays out in your office? And as with what Jamie said, our the role is growing in our office. I brought it to our office about eight years ago. Um, and we use it in a variety of settings. We use it in our pre-arraignment diversion programs where obviously a criminal record is created on the, at the moment when somebody is arraigned. So for a number of cases, we offer the opportunity for somebody to take some responsibility, do restorative justice. If that process all goes well, we never arraign them avoiding that criminal record. So we use it a great deal in our both our juvenile and our young offender pre-arraignment programs. We use it sometimes as part of an actual sentence. So it may be included as a condition of a sentence, whether that be a continue without a finding or a probationary condition, any of those settings. And we've also been growing its use in our schools and in our communities. It's been particularly useful around incidents that have involved hate or bias where there's been a real harm to the community because of something that's happened and being able to put restorative practices to use in resolving those. Okay, and uh, could you both discuss what, uh, how someone becomes eligible for the two separate programs? I'll defer to the district attorney. Thanks, so we, we take referrals, whether it is in our pre-arraignment or as part of a sentence, really very broadly. Um, our prosecutors are trained to look at cases and to spot issues with defendants who might seem a good fit for the program. So they might do it and offer that to an attorney or to a defendant in a case. Um, our police departments, we have police depart many police departments that belong to restorative justice, like organizations like C4RJ. So they will often bring a case forward saying this is a good either situation or offender or both. We think you should consider restorative justice. Um, we use it so commonly now that often defense counsel will be approaching us before a case even comes in. You know, I'm coming in with a case next week and it appears to be a good fit for restorative justice. So we cast a very wide net in terms of how we will get a referral for a case. What kinds of offenses? You mentioned the hate crimes. We've been really growing the offenses. Um, as with anything, you wanna do a balance, the public safety piece versus the use of this. So we started out, I would say, what now seems to be relatively conservatively as to sort of lower level cases, we have really grown that. Um, the only cases where we really at this point do not consider it 
would be things like a domestic violence or a sexual assault, where there's a power, there may be, well be a power imbalance or something that may have personal safety issues that would make those be inappropriate. Amy, what about the RISE program? What kinds of offenses um, are the participants charged with? And also, you mentioned that there are some participants now outside of the RISE program. Right. Yeah, so the RISE program was initially conceived of uh, with two groups of people in mind, two, two groups of defendants in mind. One is a group of people for whom uh, substance use or other addiction history has played a role, substantial role in their offense. And the other is a little bit more amorphous. It's uh, sort of described as people whose background, um, employment history or lack of employment history, um, lack of a pro-social support group, um, suggests that some period of intensive supervision would be particularly beneficial for them. Uh, so the, the categories to some extent mirror the categories of the two reentry courts that that we've had. One is called the CARE program, which is more focused on substance uh, use issues. And, and the other is the RESTART program, which has often had a number of uh, gun and gang uh, defendants in it. So uh, there was a couple of categories of people that were explicitly excluded from RISE, um, people who were charged with uh, sexual crimes and, uh, and specific, you know, sort of the typical white collar defendant um, that we might have um, is sort of excluded from RISE. But you're right, I mean, as, as I said, we've got now some defendants who are just petitioning to the court directly and are asking that their client be able to participate in restorative justice and a number of judges are letting them in. So the, the categories I would say are expanding to some extent. Um, it's not limited to people uh, you know, who are charged with low level offenses. There was an issue early on there's, you know, and I think there's ongoing discussion as to, you know, what do we do in a, in a case where the guidelines are particularly high and somebody goes through this program and let's say they do particularly well. I mean, they get a, they get a job, they are doing well with treatment. They, um, maybe, maybe their family situation has improved. Um, what do you do at that point? Are we going to take all of the good that's been done? Then we're going to say, well, thank you very much for that. And then, and then, uh, send them off to prison anyway. And there have been some who have been, uh, sentenced to prison, uh, despite completing the, the RISE program. It's a, you know, a relatively small percentage, but there have been some, uh, but that's kind of a, I think that issue is, is sort of a work in progress, uh, but we are not, uh, explicitly confined to low level offenses. So both of you um, have been prosecutors for a really long time. Um, and I know both of you were prosecutors, as I was, during the, the tough on crime era and zero tolerance police, when zero tolerance policing policies were in place. So RJ is definitely a very, very different approach. So I'd love to know how you came to this place where um, you're doing, trying this alternative to the traditional criminal legal process. I'd say, and I, and I say this often, um, certainly the first time someone told me about restorative justice and invited me to come to see a training, the idea that we were going to sit in a circle and pass something around and we were all going to come to some resolution was not something I thought I would be signing up for. Um, I am now 
statewide, probably one of the biggest advocates, worked very hard in 2018 to get this included in the criminal justice bill. And the single biggest reason I am so supportive is because, and I'm sure this is true for Jamie as well, having been a prosecutor and spent so much time in courtrooms, I have seen lots of cases happen. I have never seen the, any case that produced the kind of transformation in thinking and heart in an offender that restorative justice does. And when we think about where we should be moving, which is to prevent people coming back, what makes them come back, not come back, is usually not the sentence they get or the fine they pay or whatever, in which case we would be much more successful. It is when you can teach, reach someone's heart and mind and change that. And restorative justice, having to sit and take responsibility for your own actions, actually listen to someone that you have harmed, talk about what that has meant for them, and then have a response formulated from that circle that you have to implement, that makes an enormous difference. I often liken it to when you watch a Charlie Brown show and you hear the adults kind of wah, wah, wah in the background. I think in many cases, that's what court is like for people. And this is something very different. And that's why I've become such an ardent supporter of it. Jamie, how about you? Yeah, I think that is well put. I, I, I completely agree with uh, the district attorney on that one. Um, for me, it didn't, it didn't uh, come about as any kind of a, a political philosophy revelation. It really came about just from getting involved. I mean, I read a book uh, by Howard Zare, uh, who was one of the early leaders of this movement. And it just was a really eye-opening book about what our criminal justice system is and does and how it might not be achieving the objectives that it set out for. And then I didn't really do anything with that. And then Judge Sorokin came along and said he wanted to make this part of the RISE program. And I just said I was interested. And he put me in touch with some people who were doing uh, restorative justice in prisons. And I went out and sat in a circle with the guys at Norfolk. And just that, just that experience, I was really hooked from one circle experience and then after that, I started uh, co-facilitating circles with people in prison. And I mean, I, I, as I say to people frequently, you can tell people about restorative justice. You can read stuff about it and people can understand it at an intellectual level. Uh, but as Marion was saying, uh, you have to actually see this to really understand the transformative effect that this can have on people. And it's everybody. And I mean, I became a believer in the transformative effect um, I think largely because of the transformative effect it had on me and not the, the people in the prison. And um, as, as Marion was alluding to, this is, it's such a different approach when uh, instead of doing something to people, uh, which we're usually doing in prosecution, or even doing something for people, which is I think the mindset of a lot of people who are going in to volunteer in prison, uh, you're doing something with people and you're encountering them as a human being with respect and listening to their story. And it just, I think it changed my perspective completely. And I think it changes the perspective of most participants who go through it. And so what happened over time was I was sitting in these prison circles and, you know, listening to the people who are in prison, some of whom have been in there for a long time. And 
you know, I was doing an eight week program and, uh, you know, sometimes the people would do more than one of these eight week programs, but it was rare for me to get to the end of that eight week program and not think, you know, two thoughts, which is, um, I would hire anybody in this program if I had the ability to do that. And I'm not sure there's a one of them that really needs to spend another day in prison. Um, and, you know, that's just my perspective. And I want to, you know, emphasize that I'm not, I didn't frequently know that much about their crimes. I don't know the victim's perspective in their crimes. And I want to honor that and, and recognize that, you know, somebody who had been directly harmed by these people or even indirectly could very legitimately have a very different experience. But just from my perspective, um, there were a number of people sitting there uh, for whom uh, prison was not serving any, uh, it did not seem to be serving any particularly valuable ongoing purpose. And so I think over time that led me to believe that, you know, restorative justice is an approach where you can get to better results without such lengthy periods of incarceration um, and, and probably just do better for everyone. I mean, it's not for every single case, um, you know, as, as everybody would, would acknowledge, but um, for those where it is appropriate, um, I think you often do just get to a better result and uh, you don't, you're not left with this default position of feeling like, you know, this is somebody who just needs to be incapacitated until they get it. Jamie, I'm glad you mentioned Howard Zare. Um, because he talks about the, the three basic questions of restorative justice and how it is very victim-centered or centered around the person who has suffered harm. Um, so I want to ask both of you about response that um, you may have encountered or experienced from the people who've been harmed who have engaged in the restorative justice process. And Jamie, I know that um, the RISE program uses surrogate victims. Um, so why don't we start, um, Marianne, with uh, the victims that you've encountered who've gone through the restorative justice process. Overall, people's experience is very positive. Even people who might have participated reluctantly. Um, as Jamie said, I think we can tell you what it's like. You don't know what it's like till you sit there. Um, what I find it to be the most helpful for is very often the questions that victims have when something has happened are why questions, which prosecution doesn't answer for them. Even something simple, your house gets broken into. What you want to know is, were you one of 20 houses in the block that got hit pretty random, or did somebody target you? And regular prosecution just doesn't answer that question in most cases. So I think to the extent, even somebody who might have thought, I don't, I'm not really sure how I feel about this, comes away very positively impacted by that. Um, there are definitely people for whom there is zero interest and they, this is not something they're inclined to do. They're not, many people are not opposed to it happening. They don't wanna be part of it. We obviously don't require people to do that. Um, I don't think I have ever experienced someone who did it and didn't appreciate the experience. So they may not have chosen to do it. They may have chosen to do it reluctantly. They may have been very anxious to do it, but people who do it come away positively impacted. 
Yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that completely. Um, and I, I think Marion makes a, a really important point there. It is, it is uh, restorative justice is offering uh, victims something that they just don't get in our system. And uh, you know, that, that the why questions that she's talking about are, are exactly what we've seen as well. Um, it's just, they, they don't have any other opportunity to engage directly with the person who hurt them or, you know, in the case of a surrogate, the person who's done something similar to the person who hurt them. And they need that. You know, I, I would argue, I mean, I'm not one to really speak for people who've been harmed, but I, you know, I believe that in a lot of cases, a, a lot of victims need it without knowing that they need it. Um, you know, they, I think our, our culture is so conditioned to believe that the only just response to a serious crime is to have somebody locked up for a long period of time that I think that has become the, the response for a lot of people. You know, they've been harmed. What do you want? Well, I want this person to suffer the way I suffered. And that's a perfectly legitimate, you know, position that, that we should honor. And it's, it's understandable. But when you, when you have this alternative, and I, when you say when, what's the reaction of the victims, often it's it's very pleasant surprise, as Marianne was saying. I mean, they they just have never experienced anything like this, and they didn't know it was even possible. Um, and so, I think more often than not, victims are coming out of it feeling like their needs have been met, and they they have the ability to exhale. Uh, you know, the, the the some of the the trauma that has been you know, with them since this happened, the, the loss of agency that I think so many victims feel. Um, this has given them now a direct, you know, an actual seat at the, usually there's on the table, <laughs> a seat in the circle. And it's given them the ability to ask the questions they want to ask, as Marion was saying. Um, so uh, I think it is transformative for victims. And just to, to the uh, question of whether it's right for everybody, you know, so often we have the luxury of, of taking our time, I think, a little bit more than some people who are doing restorative justice in the criminal context do. But uh, I would say generally, if we're inviting a victim into this process, we've got a chance to talk to them in advance. And so we will know going into it whether this is something that is going to be OK for them or not. And if it's not, we wouldn't do it. Um, so there's a very low risk of, um, you know, uh, exercising any kind of uh, undue influence or coercion over the victims. Uh, we try to be very sensitive to that. You never want to have anything that comes anywhere close to uh, coercion or compulsion in the restorative justice area. It ought to be as, as voluntary as it can be. Um, but, you know, ordinarily, we know going into it whether it's going to be okay uh, for the victims. I don't know if that's been your experience, Aaron, but... Very much. And I think what you see as how people feel often towards the offender changes a great deal. You know, I always say in, in general, it's, it's easy to dislike or to hate or to judge people you don't know. When you sit for an hour or two hours or something across from somebody and, you know, invariably there's some small incident that happens maybe with the passing of the coffee or the just sharing a pleasantry or something that humanizes people who saw each other only in a status category. And that changes how people think about things. Okay, I think that is the perfect place 
to jump over into the live Q&A session. So um, Jenna, if you could put that into the chat, perfect. So I, I invite everyone, there are lots more questions to be asked. Um, I invite everyone to hit the link that just appeared in the chat and I will see you on the other side. And I wanna thank you both so much for being here and I'll see you in just one minute.